The following is a guest devotional by the Reverend Dr. Roger Wagner at Westminster Seminary, California. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this audio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect and are not endorsed by Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. This morning I have the privilege of introducing our chapel speaker. The Reverend Dr. Roger Wagner is currently senior pastor of Bayview Orthodox Presbyterian Church, where he has been for 28 years. I'm not sure if some of you are even 28 years old yet, and he's been pastoring there for that long. What a wonderful testimony of God's faithfulness to that congregation in bringing this pastor to that church. A graduate of Westmont College, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He was also awarded his most distinguished degree, of course, from Westminster Seminary, California, a Doctor of Ministry degree in 1998. So one of our distinguished alumni is back to come and preach and give God's word to us. Uh, He's also a dear friend of uh, Dr. Dennis Johnson. I believe they went to college together. Did you also drive out together? I think that's the story. They drove out from Westmont to Philadelphia to, uh, to do their MDiv as well. So we're, we're delighted to have him back here on campus to preach to us. Thank you. I am thankful for the invitation to uh, come and bring God's word to us this morning. Uh, I'd like to pose the question this morning, what does it mean to preach the gospel? And so um, I'm thinking particularly of those of you who um, have uh, perhaps begun to sense God's call to the ministry and are here preparing for that, but I hope there will be uh, useful things for those of us, all of us, who are listeners to sermons as well as those who may be called to deliver them. And by way of a passage that I hope will help us answer that question, I'd like to read Acts chapter 20, Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of our God. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 
Therefore, I testify, testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night and day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, I remember sitting in these chapels years ago and having a parade of Speakers come in, um, people from the staff and outside pastors. Um, it can get routine. And here I am for one day for a few minutes, and uh, how can I connect? Um, but Lord, it's not about me, it's about your spirit, and your spirit can connect with us. And I pray that even in the brief moments that we have to consider your word this morning, you would communicate powerfully, transformingly, vividly, your truth to our hearts. And I do pray particularly for those men who are preparing themselves to minister the word in local congregations, uh, that you would give them a vision for the breadth of that ministry uh, and a zeal to be faithful to your calling. Uh, Throughout their preparation and then throughout however years of ministry you may give them. So bless our thoughts this morning, O Lord, from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm aware of the time constraints, and so I'm going to stick close to my notes, because if I let myself just uh, go on this subject, which has filled my life for 37 years, um, you'll never get out of here, and uh, I'm sure you're thinking about what comes next as well. I imagine that as long as men have been preaching the gospel, there have been debates over what it really means to preach the gospel. And we use that phrase almost like a slogan, sometimes assuming that it's virtually self-defining. And it is an important question. God has ordained that through the preaching of the gospel, men are to be saved and the church is to be built up. Therefore, lives are hanging in the balance. We had better know what it is that we are doing. As I mentioned, I've been in the ministry for a long time, and I imagine over the years, maybe six or seven times, I've had conversations with fellow ministers that have come to me grief-stricken because they've been accused of not preaching the gospel. 
Sometimes it has arisen from the leadership of their own congregations. Maybe sometimes it's been dissatisfaction expressed by members of the church. Uh, And yet again and again and again, the, the perplexity has been, I'm not quite sure what that accusation means. Just recently, I heard from a fellow pastor who had two families leaving his church at the same time. One because he preached too much doctrine, and the other because he preached too much practical application. Same pastor, same sermons, at the same time in his life. I mean, it really is damned if you do and damned if you don't. So this is something that is important that we understand. What does it mean to preach the gospel? And of course, as with every important issue, there are a multitude of different opinions. Uh, We can talk about the different schools of preaching, and maybe one is for one kind and one is for another. Sometimes there are almost armed camps in the debates trying to influence you, young preachers and pastors, in a certain model for what it means to preach the gospel. And sometimes I get the feeling it's like those eight blind men trying to understand the elephant. What I want to do briefly this morning is look at Paul's message here because I think it sheds some helpful light on the question. He uses five, well actually six, phrases to describe his ministry among the churches or in the church in Ephesus that characterize his ministry of the word of God. And I'd like to draw your attention briefly and quickly. These can only be suggestive thoughts, as I say. They could uh, merit a lot of um, of, uh, elaboration. Uh, Maybe it'll give you something to think about after chapel and talk about. Uh, Or maybe it will come to mind in the future as you try to catch the vision for God's calling upon your pulpit ministry. I'm going to take them in a slightly different order than they occur in the sermon, uh, but I think you'll understand why when I do. First of all, then, to preach the gospel means to proclaim the redemptive historical message concerning Jesus of Nazareth, particularly his death and resurrection. In verse 24, Paul says, I testified to the gospel of the grace of God. And we might couple with that his expression in the next verse. He proclaimed the kingdom. Here he's using the the term gospel, good news, in its more restricted and and focused New Testament sense. That message concerning what God has done for sinners through the sending of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. Elsewhere, when Paul summarizes the gospel, whether in 1 Corinthians 15 or in the opening verses of the letter to the Romans, he focuses on the fact that the message that he preached was that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. We preach Christ. Like the first preachers in the book of Acts, we are witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Not to set aside his death, of course, they they go together, but that's what we are calling men to hear and understand and take account of. And even all these centuries later, Far away from the events of the first century outside Jerusalem, that's still the message people need to hear 
and respond to. That doesn't mean that every sermon is going to be about the atonement. It doesn't mean that we need to try and shoehorn the death and resurrection of Jesus into every single text that we preach. But it does mean that all of our preaching must be oriented toward the redemptive accomplishment of Jesus Christ. In that sense, Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. In his preaching, he publicly displayed Jesus as crucified. So preaching the gospel means telling the story of Jesus, his death and resurrection. Secondly, authentic preaching of the gospel includes the call for a specific response from your hearers. Verse 21, I testified both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The call for conversion, repentance and faith. This was certainly characteristic of the Lord Jesus' own preaching as he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, believe the good news. And according to Luke, when he sent out his disciples into the world, he commanded that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Here Paul focuses our attention on preaching as the particular call of God to men that are lost, those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. It is a call to turn from their rebellious self-reliance and to surrender themselves absolutely in grateful trust to a saving Lord. Your preaching has to seek and find men and women where they are, You have to speak frankly, honestly about their sins and about their need of a savior. All your preaching has to have the aim of conversion. Spurgeon said, if you don't aim at anything, you won't hit anything. And too often preaching is aimless. Well, there it is, folks. Do what you will with it. Sermons need to be aimed at conversion. And here I'm not only thinking about the initial conversion that brings us into a saving relationship with Christ, but that ongoing conversion, which is daily repentance and faith, that cross-bearing, that dying to self and living to Christ, which constitutes Christian discipleship. That kind of focus, that kind of aim will keep your sermons from becoming abstract and diffuse. It will also preserve a powerful hortatory dimension to your preaching. It's not only the so-called evangelistic sermon that has to call men to conversion. Every sermon, to one degree or another, should call men to repentance and faith. Thirdly, There's a breadth to our call to preach the gospel. It incorporates a comprehensive message. We read there in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We Reformed people love that little phrase, the whole counsel of God. Paul understood that all scripture was profitable. Man is to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He understands the cosmic implications of the confession, Jesus 
is Lord. And so he was concerned to introduce his hearers to the broad scope of biblical teaching, to, if you will, the systematic theology of the Bible. If your people are going to meet the challenges of the 21st century with its resurgent paganism and imperialism, then you have to take pains to introduce them to the broad scope of biblical teaching, to that biblical worldview that undergirds and supports everything that we say about everything in human experience. That will give your preaching comprehensiveness and balance. It will protect you from the temptation that is always there to follow your own favorite ideas or to run down your own hobby horses. Fourthly, preaching the gospel includes drawing out the practical applications of the gospel for the daily life of your people. Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, that was useful. Paul knows that all scripture is profitable, that the truth is unto godliness. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us in question three, the scriptures principally teach what we are to believe concerning God and that duty which God requires of man. Therefore, biblically faithful preaching must have a strong ethical dimension. Preaching must have its practical usefulness. John Newton wrote, I set no value on any doctrinal truth further than it has a tendency to promote practical holiness. Like the scriptures themselves then, your preaching must teach, it must rebuke, it must correct, and it must train your people in righteousness so that they might be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul explains that the risen Christ gave pastors and teachers to the church in order to build up the church by equipping people for works of service. And that means that your pulpit ministry, as well as your private ministry, must have as one of its central purposes equipping your people for their work of service under the calling of God. And just notice, before we leave it, he also references not only his public ministry, but his ministry from house to house. Echoing that, John Calvin emphasized the importance of house-to-house ministry, family visitation, pastoral counseling, as an extension of the pulpit ministry of a faithful pastor. And then finally, fifthly, Someone has described preaching as passionate, personal pleading. Passionate, personal pleading. And Paul certainly agrees with that. Verse 31, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. We typically these days train pastors in an academic environment and uh, I know it was true 40 years ago when I went to seminary and I would judge that it hasn't changed all that much we we give ourselves dispassionately sometimes to the analysis of texts to thinking through what 
we understand from the Bible and then how we might prepare it. And often too much of that academic flavor goes with the message out of the study into the pulpit. Our preaching can be cold. It can be remote. It can sometimes seem indifferent to its impact upon real flesh and blood human beings that sit in the pew before us. And if that isn't problem enough, you're going to preach hundreds of sermons in the course of a normal ministry, and so preaching and delivering sermons is going to become routine. You're going to have the sense of, I've been here, I've done that before. You have to resist the temptation to simply preach as if you're grinding so much sausage, and when you're done, you're done. You haven't done your work for your people or for your Lord if you have not begged men, pleaded with men and women to turn from their sin and to put their trust in Jesus. It's hard for any of us to learn this. It's a lot easier to bully than to beg. Begging is humiliating, and most of us don't enjoy humiliating activity. Some of you perhaps have never had to beg for anything in your life. You haven't had to beg for food. You haven't had to beg for shelter. You haven't had to beg for someone's love. So you're not going to be able to plead with human beings to turn from their sin and trust in Christ unless God gives you a heart to see that that's an essential aspect of your preaching ministry. Love has no pride when it pleads with sinners to be reconciled to God. It's worth your tears. It's worth your effort night and day to admonish people with that kind of passionate, personal pleading. After all, their eternal destiny is at stake. Well, I hope from these few comments on these phrases of Paul, you can get a clearer picture of the elephant. This call to pastoral ministry, to preaching ministry, is exceedingly broad. And we don't do each other any favors when we say, no, it's this and not that, or it's this and not that, or let's emphasize this and neglect that. Keep all these phrases in mind as you think about what you're doing as you preach the word. It's not that every sermon is going to incorporate all of that, but like they say with baseball, a preaching ministry is a long season. There are lots of sermons under lots of circumstances to lots of different people. And viewed as a whole, it should be characterized by these five descriptive characteristics. It's a broad and a rich conception. Paul had a sense of the breadth of his preaching task, but he also never lost sight of its particular focus and of its practical purpose. May God give you grace as you prepare for that kind of ministry or as you sit under that kind of ministry to long for that rich expression of God's truth in our lives. Let's pray. Father, that was a sprint. Please help us to retain and to reflect upon what you've set before us today. It's so important that we see the big picture, 
whether we're receiving the ministry of your word from our pastors or whether we're preparing to be the instruments of giving that word to your people, feeding your flock. Lord, we pray that our preaching would be consistently Christ-centered, cross-centered, resurrection-proclaiming. We pray, Lord God, that it would be practical, that it would be broad, that it would be passionate, so that our people might enjoy what you have promised to them by ordaining the ministry of preaching for the conversion of men and the building up of the church. And may Christ himself alone have the glory and praise. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.